when film criticism is as provocative as ever, Feelin' Film ventures to change the discussion from what we hate about a film to what we love about it. We judge more on emotional experience than technical merit, because every movie makes us feel something. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 70 of the Feelin' Film podcast. I'm Patrick, and with me is good friend and co-host Aaron. Hello. This week, we are talking about one of two films we put out in a poll that edged out the other. (laughs) Now, that one will probably more than likely be on the schedule at some point, especially if one of uh, our certain contributors has anything to say about it. But that's later. On this episode, we are diving into the world of stop motion animation and paper. Lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots. Okay, okay. I uh, I think we get that there's a lot. Lots of paper. (laughs) (laughs) We're talking about Kubo and the Two Strings, a 2016 regret from both of us with regards to not seeing it in the theater. But I know I'm personally glad to get to remedy that, and I'm pretty sure Aaron is as well. But before we get to that, I want to do a little bit of housekeeping. Are there any announcements that we need to fulfill on uh, on your end? Yes, yes. There, there are definitely, or there is definitely one announcement that we need to make, and that is that I'm awesome. There, great announcement. All right, let's move on to the. Well, I mean, you know, that (laughs) is about as equally exciting as the one I'm going to (laughs) make. I can give you that. Go ahead. Go ahead. So, um, we, well, I. Uh, in my infinite uh, obsession of all things hobby-related and wanting to talk about them, have decided to work on a new project recently. And uh, with the help of a couple of other film podcasters who also happen to be board game fanatics, we decided that we had a great idea for a board game slash movie podcast. And that show, which has been kind of being worked on behind the scenes for about a month now is finally out in the open. It has launched. The show is called tabletop flicks and that's F L I X, not F L I C K S uh, because you know, here at feeling film, we have to, we have to spell everything a little odd. We have to make it difficult on you, but, yes, uh, exactly. <laughs> but <memorable>. yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it's called tabletop flicks uh, as a significant for, you know, board game movie mashup. And the idea of this podcast is that the three of us will get together, and each episode is centered on a theme. So the first two episodes, respectively, uh, the first one is on disease, and the second one is on monsters. Hopefully that sounds interesting. And each of these themes, what we do is we find board games and movies that pair well together, kind of with the thought being that if you were going to have some friends over to spend a night hanging out you could play this board game and you could watch this movie and it would be a very thematic experience for you we have a lot of knowledge uh, when it comes to board games Uh, we have been in the hobby for many many years so we are current on on what board games are hot and what is being played Uh, but we also like to make sure that we are trying to talk about games that are accessible in a lot of ways uh, so that our listeners can discover new games that might interest them as well. Uh, this is not quite like feel and film in that we don't go really in depth in the review portion of the movie talk. Uh, it's really definitely more about how does the theme in the movie make you feel like 
the same way as when you play a video game or a, a, a board game that's similar. So if any of this sounds entertaining or interesting to you, Tabletop Flicks, it's out there. You can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, etc., etc., etc. Give it a shot. Check it out. Download it. It's going to come out right now. The main episodes will be coming out every two weeks. And the next one coming up after these first two will be on dinosaurs. So hopefully it's going to continue being a lot of fun. We really, really enjoyed the first two episodes that were recorded and would love for all of you listening to check it out. Great, man. I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, I enjoy um, the ideas that you come up with. And even if I don't connect personally on the subject matter, I'm really, really excited to vicariously live through your excitement and and doing that. So I'm definitely personally excited to to see where tabletop flicks goes. If for no other reason than to satisfy my personal uh, ego in seeing people like or dislike the logo since you know i get to help design that so you at did. the very least i have i have some i have some stake in the game or some skin in the game when it comes to that so hopefully for my, at least my own ego it's successful for sure <laughs> and no, I'm, I'm, well ahead. and i don't know i don't know um if more will be coming in the future because that's you know a, no way to know or to tell that but this sure. is the first real kind of Feel and Film hosted other podcasts. This is mm-hmm. this is not just movies, but it is definitely tied to movies, and it is definitely tied to the same kind of tone that we do with Feel and Film. It's it's very upbeat, very positive in in nature, uh, and you know it's just very conversational. So uh, it's yeah. it's hosted by us. The website for Tabletop Flicks, tabletopflicks.com, will take you to feelandfilm.com as well. Uh, to to show you the show page and things like that, and I'm really glad that you were willing to uh, let us do that. So and kind of put these Heck things yeah, two I, together. I think the concept has a lot of potential. I don't know that they. I'm not a podcast like junkie, uh, sadly. Even though I mean we know a lot of people in the podcast community, but I uh, I think that it's got a very niche idea with it. You know, it's one of those things where you, you hear about board game podcast you hear about movie podcasts but what a what a cool way to kind of marry them up in a in a unique and interesting way so i I hope successful i hope it's successful i thank you at the very least i hope it's a good conversation which it sounds like from the first episode it is (laughs) yes sir well with that being said if we don't have anything else i'd like to go ahead and just dive right into this i think we've got quite a bit to say um so before we even get into it as always we're going to give you the Obligatory spoiler alert. This was a 2016 film, so yes, there the statute of limitations has not run out yet. But wanted to give you a quick spoiler alert. If you haven't seen this, please remedy that. Go see it. Uh, even if you don't listen to this episode, just go see it. Do yourself a favor because I don't think you'll be disappointed. And uh, that being said, if you must let's blink, talk. do it now. <laughs> what a great segue. Let's talk a little bit about that. First of all, let's. Let's get initial impressions. So this was a film that I believe was on our schedule when we were doing scheduling back in the spring. It was something that August is one of those months where we don't really know where we're going to be in terms of you know being two years in. August is one of those months where something great could be there or it could just be kind of the the if it's the dead of summer, it's the dead of movies, too. There's not a lot of exciting things happening and so Kubo came around. It was getting some pretty good, pretty good, uh, pretty good reviews, pretty good, uh, pretty positive 
feedback, but I think we had been in the theater quite a bit and I actually did some research, Aaron. We took this off the, off the schedule and we replaced it with Sing Street. So I don't actually feel as bad <laughs> that, that we replaced it. Although having watched it now, I definitely regret not seeing this film in the theater. There's something special about this film in the theater. I could have and did uh, <laughs> watch Sing Street you know, at home. And so at least in that part, I definitely re- regretted it. So uh, was you know I wasn't upset that we replaced it with Sing Street, but I did have some regrets with regards to that. So that's, that, inter- that's interesting because I looked it up too <laughs> to see <laughs> what episode it was we, we replaced it with. And I kind of giggled when I saw that it was Sing Street. So like, oh, yeah, well, Patrick's going to be OK with that. Um, <laughs> it, but you're right. We would have we would have eventually covered Sing Street anyway, because it wasn't a, a real theater pick for us. It was mm-hmm. it was something we watched when it hit streaming, and I I do regret not seeing this in the theaters for a couple of reasons. One being, as visually stunning as this film is, it, it is it is just such a joy to watch. Every single time I've I've put it on, it is candy for the eyes when it comes to animation, and I would have just loved to been able to do that in a in a big screen setting as big as possible. The other reason, honestly, is. I would have liked to give my dollar to Leica Studios, right? And I and I actually purchased this film, and I don't buy a lot of movies, but I did that because partially I wanted to make sure that I was supporting this. Leica is not one of the biggest animation studios. It's not Pixar. It's not DreamWorks. It doesn't have the name and the money behind it that those do. But they've put out some amazing work in recent years, and I... I feel strongly that if we don't vote with our dollar when it comes to the movies that we actually say we love, then those movies are going to eventually just continue as they have been to become more and more scarce. And we're just going to be stuck with this landscape of Transformers and Pirates of the Caribbean and, and superhero movies every single weekend instead of every other weekend, you know? And, uh, and so I, I was sad that I wasn't able to, to put some of my money towards them in the theater, but uh, yeah, it, it's it's such a beautiful movie, uh, and I'm really, really glad that now that we're talking about it, more people have gotten to see it and will be able to enjoy a conversation about it. Yeah, it's it was so cool to have that poll in the field and see that it not only got so many votes, but that the voting was so close. And we had two great films, and both were critically acclaimed in a lot of their ways, but and they were both in their own ways, independent films. They, they didn't, like you mentioned, like a studios doesn't make a lot of money. They were, it, it's not a, one of the big players. And as I was thinking about this today in prep for the, for the show, I began to think about Jeff Nichols and how as a director, what he does with his stories is just tell stories. He's not driven by a giant blockbuster budget. He's not, at the hands of a big studio and losing creative control. I believe one of the interviews that I, I saw he was talking about midnight special and he said, I don't know that I'd want to do a big budget film because I'd want to make the movie that I want to make. And I feel like like studios as a studio is that I think that they have good movies that feel very refreshing, original, um, approachable, poignant, they have really neat messages. They're 
<laughs> visually fun to look at at the very least um e- extravagantly beautiful at the at at the greatest and i feel like like a studios as a whole maybe the attitude behind it is it feels like it's saying we just want to make good movies we just want to tell stories that people will enjoy and when you look at a film like kubo and the two strings that's exactly what i felt like watching it i felt like this was a story that didn't feel like it had pressure attached to it it didn't feel like it was trying to be something that it wasn't it used a not only traditional art style in stop motion animation which let me just stop right real quick and say i didn't realize until halfway through that this was stop motion that's how beautiful and seamless it felt and looked and maybe some of it was and some of it wasn't but i was just enamored with this just the non-choppiness of it like it didn't feel like clay walking around on the big screen it felt like cg and so you take that coupled with a very very interesting story one that feels nolan-esque <laughs> <laughs> and you you get me right in the feels and you get me in the intellect and i walk away saying one, I wish I would have seen this in the theaters. And two, man, I'm glad you bought it because <laughs> I'm so grateful to own it. It's yeah. one that I would love to just put on a on a little shelf and say, look at this. I own this movie. This is a really I'm, – I'm very proud to own it. And I, I – yeah, I, again, I, I regret not seeing it when it came out. But like you said, it's good to be able to talk about it now because it's got a bigger fan base that hopefully a lot of our listeners are part of that and they're going to be – nodding their heads in agreement with what we're saying tonight. Yeah. I mean, clearly, clearly a large portion of our Facebook group that did the voting is, and even, even those that didn't choose Kubo to vote for, we, by the way, we keep talking about this listeners. For those of you who are not in the Facebook discussion group, it is open and anyone can come join that. You can find links. We talk about it every week, but you can find links in the show notes and on the blog and on the website. But those that did vote, many of them said like they were equally as enamored with Kubo, but the opposing film Edge of Seventeen, they loved it as well. So like, I mean, it wasn't like oh, half the people didn't like Kubo. This isn't Rotten Tomatoes where it's either or. Uh, they, you know, they they really enjoyed it as well. So and it makes sense to me with with our community of feelers, you know, out there. This is a movie that's gonna resonate like that. My kids adore it as well. And I love that you make the connection to Nolan because that's one of the first things that captures my attention when I saw this. And I've seen it multiple times now. And so each time I've kind of picked up on different things, but every single time I am really watching in that opening. The first time I watched it, the movie starts off with this big opening kind of epic scene of the mother on the water and waves or washing her up on the shore. We don't know what's going on. And there's this amazing voiceover. And I'm just going to read it real quick because he says, you know, if you must blink, do it now. But then it goes on. It says, pay careful attention to everything you see and hear, no matter how unusual it may seem. And please be warned, if you fidget, if you look away, if you forget any part of what I tell you, even for an instant, then our hero will surely perish. And it's just Oh man, I mean as a as a narration, it's a hook, right? But in future viewings, Patrick, what you're going to find is when you know that that's there, 
and you start realizing how meta this movie is, you're going to go, oh, wait, he's telling me to pay careful attention. I got to tell you, it's, it's really interesting. The, the, the moment that the words pay careful attention are actually being spoken on the screen, we are facing the back of Kubo's mother and she is wearing a red shirt with a beetle emblem on the shirt. Oh, I'm sorry, a backpack. She's wearing a red backpack with a beetle on the backpack. And so, obviously, we don't know anything about that until way later in the movie, right? The beetle is not revealed. Come to find out, Kubo is wearing a shirt that has been made out of that backpack. But none of that connects in the moment when you're first seeing it. But it's like they're telling you right then and there. And it, it just totally reminds me of The Prestige. And... The, the awesome, awesome language used in The Prestige, you know, where they're saying, are you watching closely? And Nolan is kind of showing you the magic trick, but yet you're not connecting the dots. And Kubo, to me, is the animated version of that. I absolutely agree with that. And what it does is it creates this really interesting invitation for us as an audience to partake in the story. Because... When you're listening to someone tell you a story, you're, you're only invited to a certain extent. But like a magic trick, most of the time, the magician is interacting with you. He's talking with you. You become part of the act in a, in, in a certain way. And I think what this opening narrative does is it's, it's the filmmaker's way of saying, come in, be a part of this. Don't just be a spectator, be a participant. And I've talked about that on the on the show like tons of times about how cool it is to be what the power of film has to allow us to participate in the adventure, to participate in the story and the narrative more so than just sit back and watch. Yes, there is a threshold. There's a screen in front of me and I am watching things play out. But when you start a film with something that intriguing something that mysterious he is telling us the audience he's not telling anybody else he's telling us he is aware of us pay careful attention to everything you see and hear no matter how unusual it may seem dude that's an invitation for us to be a part of this Mm -hmm. and i love it i absolutely love it because it elevates the film at that point for me it says i'm invested i'm ready to go i'm not just sitting back and watching what happens i am potentially actively participating as much as I can. I wish that there was a point where, you know, I was hoping I was almost anticipating a choose your own adventure. What should Kubo do here? You know, that kind of thing. I'm glad it didn't happen that way because I don't, if I controlled the narrative, it would just end up like a martial arts film with children or something like that. But I I think that what Kubo does as a film in that way makes it a lot stronger (laughs) than a lot of animated features that I've seen in the last three or four years. I mean, the ones that are the ones that have been my favorite have had heart. They've had a great little, you know, lesson learned. But this does something really, really different mm-hmm. because you become part of that lesson learned. And and there's just a lot of power in that. I love the way you're describing it because that is exactly how I have felt and, and I don't know that I've ever been able to articulate it in words. And so you just did it for me because I I tweeted out after watching this for the the podcast, the third time recently, you know, in preparation for the podcast, I tweeted out that this 
is absolutely one of my favorite animated movies of all time. It just continues to rise and rise and rise. And I, I believe that it will be that way for you too. I really do think that it just gets better. It's one of those films that will just get better and better with, with subsequent viewings like the prestige. Um, and so, yeah, it's, you're exactly right. I mean, it's, there are other animated movies and I can think of a ton of Pixar films that I, I really enjoyed and are in that, you know, four to five ish type star range for me, I would say, because they're so good or because they pack an emotional punch. They have an emotional impact, but that concept in this particular film of being part of the story and going on this journey with him is just so unique and so unlike anything else. And before we move on from the animation a little bit, the stop motion, this has made stop motion. I want to say my favorite style of animation. This is the most gorgeous animation that I've seen. I love CGI when it's done well, but if you put the most gorgeous animated movie, and I don't know what that would be right now, the most colorful probably recently would be Dory, right? Finding your Dory. Name, your name. Oh, your well, name. now we're going to really make it difficult. Yeah. But, just throw a rock in your um, pond right there, buddy. <laughs> but even even that, it, there's something unique about stop motion animation that feels different. It just it just feels so different. And it, I guess it feels more like hand done art. And, and I know that's not necessarily true, but because you can kind of, if you really watch closely, you can see that it's frames and it's done that way. It, I, I get the sense of like more artistry or I can, I guess I can recognize the artistry better it, it is what I'm trying to say. And so I, I really, really thoroughly just enjoy this type of animation and there's an awesome sequence in the credits of this film where they show you like some of the work that was done and how they animated uh like the big skeleton fight when kubo was trying to find the sword unbreakable and i i really love it i mean every i've i've watched it like i said three times every single time i've watched that credit scene all the way through completely engaged in that moment because i wanted to see how they did it again and again and again there is um, maybe what you're trying to get at with regards to stop motion. You know, hand-drawn animation is it's still around. Obviously, it's something that I'm glad has not gone away because as a, as a fan of comics, even from a digital standpoint, there's still an artist's touch that goes on to the paper. You know, when you recognize a particular art, artist style, you know that because of the the heaviness of their pencil strokes or the way in which they draw a face or something like that. Where I think st- stop motion animation stands out is there's there's this there's a there's a tangible quality. You're sculpting. You're you're actually molding faces with your hands. You're there's literally a hands-on thing. It, and it and it's a three-dimensional type of thing. And I remember a few years ago my my boss, his wife is a an incredible artist, incredible illustrator, but she's also a pretty amazing sculptor. And she created this character for a 15 second stop motion animation Christmas commercial for a credit union of some kind, for, well for a holiday of lights type thing. Well, he invited me out because he knows I'm, he knows I'm a big fan of just animation in general and specifically stop motion. And we, we, we walked into the studio and we see them, we see her take this piece. They're in the middle of a, of a shot of a frame and 
over the course of 15 minutes, she is meticulously positioning this, I think it was a gnome of some kind or an elf, his hands and slightly moving his face upward to mimic a letter or a, a word or, or something like that. And 15 minutes later, click with the camera. And that's one frame. And there's just this, I, I sat there and I'm going, I could see, I could think two things. One, I could think, man, <laughs> that's boring. How could you do that all day for such a, such a low payoff, right? Or what I actually thought was, this is incredible because look how much time, patience, and care is taken in putting something like this together for 15 seconds. 15 seconds of this person's art is going to be on the screen and she's probably putting in like 15,000 hours or whatever. I was looking at some of the trivia on IMDb. The the boat sequence took 19 months to shoot. That's uh, Kubo, Kubo had 48 million possible facial expressions and a total of 23,187 prototype faces were created for him. There were at least 145,000 photographs turned into a stop mode this the stop motion animation film as a whole. You can't tell me that people didn't care about this product down to the sculptors, down to the photographers and all the way up the ranks at the very least what stop motion tells me. And particularly in this film, people care about this movie and you could have phoned it in and made a really visually stunning film with stop motion and then phoned in the story. But Nope, didn't stop there. Went right up to the writers and the director and all the people that went into this and as a creative person, as someone who who just, ah, why this podcast exists, this is what we should be celebrating, the joy that goes into a project like this. And it came out and and was completely successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I agree with you. I think stop motion is one of my favorite, if not my favorite style of animation for no other reason than the meticulousness that goes into it. Because there's a there's a special craft and care that goes into doing something like this. So the the thing that I love also about this particular story is how completely focused on just the central concept of family it is. Um, there's there's not a lot of extra special. I don't want to use the word preaching, but uh, it's not trying to make any kind of social point. Um, and 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 I'm not knocking films that have done that like. Zootopia or Finding Dory. There's a place for that. And there's, there's, it's fine. They're, they make good mess. They have good messages, right? But as we begin to get more and more and more of that, I, it was very refreshing to have a family picture that was just centered around the idea of how your family helps you become stronger. Um, the relationships in it are, so well done uh, for uh, one of my favorite parts of this film is Kubo's relationship with his mom. Um, as we see it specifically early on in the film where he's about to leave and go to the, um, go down to the town to play. And before he leaves, his mom is just staring out catatonic into the ocean and you see him talking to her and he moves a strand of her hair out of her eye and behind her ear so that she can see clearly she's not moving. She's just staring. Right. I mean, I, I start to cry like in that moment and it's like five minutes into the daggum movie. So, but that depiction of family and then 
of course, as the film progresses, the relationship and the dynamic between Beetle and Monkey, to me, is just wonderful. Even before you know who they are, it's, it's a lot of fun, and it's cute, and it just feels sweet. But then once you realize who they actually are, that they're his parents, their banter and their witty conversations that they have and the way in which that they still look out for each other, even though they're kind of picking at each other all the time. I mean, it feels like a genuine relationship and family and not one that's perfect. Like everybody in this family has, has issues or has problems. I mean, for goodness sakes, his parents met, they were fighting, right? (laughs) They were actually literally fighting when they fell in love. So, this is not a perfect family, but it's a family that has always and still puts each other first no matter what. And I, I love that about it. I do too. There is a, there's a nicety to not having a heavy handed story or a heavy handed meaning or narrative. Something that I think you and I, um, we don't talk about this much, but because of our faith background, I think we hear a lot of conversation about, the negative impact of faith-based movies because they assume that their audience is kind of dumb and they need to kind of preach their message. They have to get really, really obvious instead of letting their audience decide for themselves or infer. And as film lovers, you and I can probably agree that less is more (laughs) really works when it comes to a narrative, unless it's specifically trying to make a point about something like uh, mental illness or a disability or the general state of our country or something and doing that in a creative way. What I think is refreshing about Kubo is that we all understand the dynamic of family and Kubo's story is simply an extension of that. It's simply a, Hey, here's, I know your, you know, your family's probably crazy. Well, let me tell you about mine. I mean, he, <laughs> yeah, he kind of foreshadows it by telling a story in his first kind of performance, his first storytelling thing. But you mentioned Beetle and Monkey, and oh my gosh, I just adored that relationship. I was so pleasantly surprised to to find out that Matthew McConaughey was voicing Beetle. I didn't know any of the cast before watching this, so that was very refreshing. I was like, is that Matthew McConaughey? And then I was like, all right, all, all right, right, all right. right. <laughs> you know, so. But you could have, if, if they wanted to, the filmmakers could have said, they could have not had that part of the narrative that they were his parents because their dynamic was really great. I mean, they were great sidekicks. They, were, they had great relationship with him and with each other, the plus one comes from comes when we find out who they are and it gives them such a deeper value, a, a deeper appreciation. And you're right. We get to see them as like, that's what, that's what a couple does. <laughs> they fight and they, they know each other's quirks and they can finish each other's sentences. And I, I just, when you see it on those different planes, when you see it from, the beginning from Kubo's perspective before and then afterwards again we are we are discovering that with him and it's so um in not enticing but it's just so refreshing that all of this can come from a story that is could be classified as a simple adventure if if you look at the plot points in this a guy is going to find three elements a sword 
a, a shield and a helmet. <laughs> I don't know that I know of a specific narrative that repeats that, but it's the hero's quest. You know, he's going to discover something and you take that that is familiar and you add to it to create intrigue and to create sincerity and create laughter and other emotional responses. And that's where I think this film succeeds is it gives us the familiar and then it takes the familiar and it makes something more interesting out of that because they know that they can trust us to say, we know what family's like. We know the dynamic of family. Now let's, let's reinvent that a little bit. Let's look at it from a different perspective and let's tell this story. So yeah, it was great. I love that. I love that theme. Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought up the the quest aspect of this because you and I both have been somewhat of I don't uh, James, I don't want to say James Har- Harleman disciples, but uh, James Harleman is a uh, writer and podcaster and uh, he's a pastor as well, and he's done film and theology uh, talks for a long time. And one of the things that he talks about in his book Cinema Gog is how stories are just recycled over and over and over and over and how the conversation that we tend to have in movie groups or with friends is about, well, there's no original content. Why is there no original content? Why do we have the same plots over and over? There's only a handful of plots. And this, this idea originated from a man named Joseph Campbell. Uh, And I I don't want to, I don't want to butcher all of the information here, but one of the main plot points is called the hero's journey that you were referring to. And in a hero's journey, the concept is a hero ventures forth from the world to co- a world of common day into a region of supernatural wonder. Fabulous forces are there encountered, and a decisive victory is won. The hero comes back from this mysterious adventure with the power to bestow boons on his fellow man. And that's Kubo. That is Kubo is tried and true, the hero's journey. And those three pieces, oh, Man, Patrick, I love him. I love it when they announce him, when he, especially when he's, you know, playing the music and he's explaining what they are. He's, you know, the sword, unbreakable, the breastplate, impenetrable. And I think, isn't it? I think it's the breastplate where somebody doesn't say it right. <laughs> impenetrable. Or yeah, what? the little girl. <laughs> yeah. <right>? The little. <laughs> so adorable. Uh, and then the helmet, invulnerable. Man, those, I, f- so I've, I've played Dungeons and Dragons and some, some role playing games in my life, right? And that's what this felt like to me. It felt like a storyteller, a, a game master, telling my character the quest I was going to go on. I was going to go on this quest and this journey to find these three items and slay the big beast, you know, to save the town or whatever. And that's that's Kubo. But it's done in such a way and with such a style and, and in a, an era, in this Japanese era that it's being t- or setting that it's being told in that I've never seen before. And another thing that's really cool is it some some have complained and I will I will admit this freely that the voices are quote unquote whitewashed. Kubo got caught up in some of the the current uh, you know trend of saying things are whitewashed because the actors voicing the characters are not Japanese. <laughs> um now to be fair, I don't know that a beetle or a monkey needs to sound any specific ethnicity. Uh, but it is a, it is a very Asian setting and the actors are not Asian. And so, sure. so that was an understandable criticism on some levels, but on another level, the, the, I love the voices 
so much. I think that they work really well. And I think that the film kind of makes up for it because of its, its um, respectful way in which it treats the Shinto religion, which I absolutely am not like well versed in. Um, you mentioned earlier, your name, uh, this is another film, a Japanese anime film that, that the Shinto religion in Japan features uh, prominently in the story of this. And this one has that it has, uh, this idea of the souls and the lanterns, uh, and, and talking to one's loved ones. Uh, at one point in Kubo, they mentioned they see some golden herons flying overhead, and he mentions that the golden heron is of legend to be or is known as legend tells it to carry the souls of the dead, you know, to the next life essentially. And it was interesting because I was watching a film earlier this year, Disney Nature's Born in China, and one of the groups of animals that they followed was this golden heron flock. And I learned that that I learned that that a uh, religious kind of legend about the golden heron in that movie as well. And so to me, they did a good job of trying to be respectful of the setting that they were using to tell this story. Yeah, I don't agree with the whitewashing issue because you could make a similar argument for anime that has English dubbed voice work for instance the Miyazaki films that we love so much one of the reasons that I enjoy a lot of the films and you and I have watched we watched uh, Kiki's Delivery Service uh did we we watched it with with English with we American did. voices mm-hmm. yeah to me I think when it comes to animated stuff you get enough tribute enough honor enough respect whatever the word is in the animation and the settings and I think if you Yes, if you were to add Japanese voices to it, that would make it more authentic. But I don't think that's what these guys were going for. I think they were going for showing us a visual culture accuracy and in, in showing us the subtlety of these, these fe- this festival and all these different details that they, that they put into the actual animation. I, I, didn't, I didn't see whitewashing. What I saw was a beautifully made film that paid a lot of respect and to, to the culture that it was trying to exist in. I I wonder what would you have it be? Would you have it be, I guess, Japanese voices with, with subtitles? You could do that, but does, does Miyazaki and, and studio Ghibli, do, do they lose credibility when they start putting, you know, English dubs on their films? No, they don't. I mean, they're already respected, but not because, they, not just because they have original voices from the, the native area. I mean, I don't call Kiki's Delivery Service whitewashing because I can understand the voices. Right. And I think that I think animation, whether it's stop motion or anime, I think it, get, it should get a pass. You know, if you were to make this live action and you were to put some Americans in there that are going to be, you know, represent Japanese, that would probably put up some red flags. But I think voice work and animation, I don't know that that matters because you almost you could potentially lose your audience at that point because they're so focused on reading the subtitles and not seeing. If we go back to what Kubo's saying, pay attention to what you see and what you hear. You know, we would almost lose that if we were focused so much on the subtitles. 
and I'm not saying that subtitles are a detriment. I mean, I like, I don't mind subtitles. I use them all the time when I'm watching movies and my wife's asleep, but I don't think it was a detriment at all. I didn't see it as distracting, but then I'm a 38 year old white guy. So right. I probably have a biased opinion. So that's definitely something worth discussing, but I did not see whitewashing at all. I, I didn't either. It, did, it definitely doesn't bother me. Um, one of those other things that I mentioned about the lanterns, I just kind of glossed over, but I, I did want to point out that I really connected with that scene where Kubo is trying to talk to a lantern or it's in essence, it's a grave. It's the, it's the equivalent of you or I going to visit a loved one at the graveyard. Right. Um, and he's kind of going through this, this dialogue of not having been, he's realizing he, he wasn't ever able to say everything he wanted. Right. Because he never got a chance to do that. And it just, that was something that hit, hit home for me. Um, having lost my mom a few years ago, not that I feel that there's things I did not get to say, but I, I understand how anyone can feel that way. Uh, and so that was just a really powerful, relatable moment. I thought that, uh, continued to start to draw us in, to the whole family and to Kubo as a character to as, as our avatar, as we kind of went through this story and on this journey with him, that was something that we all could easily feel what he was feeling in that moment. There's definitely a finite idea that's illustrated there when he finally gets to see his, his deceased parents and be kind of reunited with them um, and just before earlier in the film, during the big confrontation, he makes he, he says this line. He says, "No, you're wrong." He's he's almost being tempted to by his grandfather mm-hmm. to go live to go you know be one with with him and to kind of be whatever the the head dude or whatever. And that line that Kubo says, "No, you're wrong. Not infinite. All stories have an end." So there's something really interesting here because earlier in the story, we we get a hint of the fact that he doesn't finish his stories. <laughs> that when he goes down to the village, we we kind of get an idea that he tells a story, but he never actually finishes. Like he kind of leaves people hanging on a cliffhanger. And it got me thinking about, generally speaking, do we as people, do we want endings to our stories, whether personal or otherwise? Uh, specifically in film, we don't see much original storytelling. There was a there was an argument or an article of uh, a couple of years ago. I think it was on Screen Rant, and it was talking about Tomorrowland as an example of an original idea gone gone bad, and how Tomorrowland was up against all these reboots and all these remakes and all these IPs that were just slaughtering it. <laughs> And I think Max Landis's American Ultra, which is another sort of original idea, although using similar plot devices, but you just kind of enhancing it with uh, with just personal touches here and there. And I, I recall that article and started thinking about as as an as an audience, do we want more original stuff? Because it seems like we don't. I mean, if we look at this summer's movies, there's a ton of sequels. There's a ton of mm-hmm. reboots. There's a ton of just non-original stuff 
And the stuff that is original, I think we sort of cast off. Passengers was a great example. Mm-hmm. You know, it it was an original screenplay. It didn't come from any. It didn't come from a different like like a an existing IP a book. It wasn't an adaptation or anything like that. Existing IP. There, thank you for that. And so we have all these examples of potential quote unquote you know failed attempts at original storytelling. And do you think that that's a true statement? Do you or do you think am I being kind of in my own head or what do you think? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I think it could be a critique on that. Absolutely. I mean, you're talking about a small time animated studio here that struggles to get their movies out. So uh, for them to implement a little bit of a, of a poke there makes sense. But uh, I just thought it was a great, a a great statement on so many different things. It, It, the idea that, being infinite or or being eternal was what mattered the most that that allow that because of that it allows you to ignore your family and not not care about the people that are not eternal or not infinite with you um and not treat them the same i just i thought it was kind of more of kubo saying hey well, no you don't get to just go on forever and be like that it will eventually come to an end uh, as well as all things do right from ashes, ashes to ashes, dust to dust kind of concept. So I think, I think it can be read multiple different ways, which is, which is great. I absolutely love the line and that whole conversation. Um, and the fact that Kubo already sticks up or sticks up for himself and, and comes up against his grandfather. He doesn't, he doesn't even begin to waver and fall for what his grandfather is selling. Yeah, to me, I think that's a turning point for him, or at least mm-hmm. it's an example of when we realize that he has come to his final um, moment of maturity. It's akin to Frodo throwing the the ring into uh, in, into Mordor. You know, it's it's that moment that we realize we're celebrating with the hero. He's reached his journey's end, and he's being very meta. He's like, "This is the end of my story with with this adventure." But earlier in the film, I want to say it's Monkey or his mom who is talking to Beetle and she says something about the line, along the lines of stories are like paper. You know, they have a, a beginning and an end and you can mold them into whatever you want, but you can also stitch them together. That each piece of paper is a story that can be stitched together, but it has a... It has its own purpose. It has its own meaning. And when you combine them, you create even bigger stories. I mean, this is me inferring at this point. But I thought that was such a beautiful metaphor. And the use of paper in this film, uh, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a sound junkie. I listen, uh, I, I love and completely respect Foley artists, the guys that actually put the sounds into movies that amplify them and, and really bring out, you know, like punches and running and things like that. And so from the very beginning, the opening credits, hearing all that paper rattle and hearing how the paper, as it bends and turns and tears and all that stuff, um, it, it's very, it was very apparent to me that paper was going to be a supporting actor in this film. And so when she described that, when she described paper as being stories that we tell and how it can interconnect when you lay them against, you know, next to each other and how they form bigger stories, that was such a beautiful visual idea. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. a great, great description of it. And I think that if I think about that, if I take a step back and look about 
that in my personal life, my life is a series of stories. Our lives are, are stories that are told and they have endings, but <laughs> there's a, what was the, um, the pop song, uh, closing time. <laughs> and I love the line that says every new beginning comes from a, some other beginnings end. And that's such a true statement. And I think it's artic- that idea is articulated in this film that Kubo's story in, in, in this movie has an end, but it also has a beginning because now he is ironically through death reunited with both of his parents and he can now move forward because I feel like there's at least part of his story where he was still kind of, he was going through this sense of loss and, and, and mystery and trying to figure out, you know, who he was and the mystery around his, his father. And so getting that resolution, I feel like it's, I don't want to see a Kubo tube. I'm not saying that, no. but I'm saying that I, th- I think that it brings out a sense of saying, yes, this part of my life is over and now it's time to begin with whatever's going to come next. And yeah, I can relate to that because I've seen parts of my life end and how those endings springboard into new beginnings. Yep. Yeah, totally. I, you know, I, there's the other thing that I guess I would, I wanted to mention that I really enjoy and I don't have a ton to talk about on this, but I just, I really like the humor. I thought that the humor was well-placed, uh, well-paced as far as when it occurred versus when we got emotional moments. There are just some, some great zinger lines uh, in there. You know, uh, at one point, Gosh, who is it? I think it's, is it Monkey and Beetle? Or no, it's Kubo. Oh Kubo. <laughs> Kubo. Kubo and Beetle. Somebody and Beetle, because Beetle's got the best lines. Kubo <laughs> says, Monkey, do you ever say anything encouraging? And Monkey says, just looks at him. And, and just like a mom, right? And it, it felt, this is what I felt like. I felt like this was me talking to my daughter. And she says, I encourage you not to die. And, and like, <laughs> it's just so deadpan and, and kind of, like I used the word early banter. Because there's mm-hmm. there's love behind the joking and right. the the teasing that is going on, um, I, I just I really enjoyed it. I think I, I have a smile on my face the entire time I'm watching this film, and that's to me that is something special. I mean, it's nonstop from beginning to end, uh, except mm-hmm. for the parts where I'm crying, and even then I'm kind of smiling through my tears. <laughs> um, and I and I'm very I'm actually very sad. You can probably understand now why I was pushing so hard at the end of last year, saying this should be the best picture for animated movies. Um, mm-hmm. Cause I'm guessing that now you probably would agree with me. Oh, absolutely. So. It does so much with so little. And at the same time, reflecting back with what you just said, the familiarity that we get from these characters, the way in which they, they're comfortable having this banter that we sense camaraderie. We, we sense affection within the sarcasm, within the, the these these humorous moments tells us so much about their deep affection for each other the way in which they each care for each other in a certain way even without knowing that they are father mother and son three friends three comrades three companions we see their love for each other in those moments and to me that's family you know when i feel safe ribbing on my wife for something that she does and she can laugh about that. I feel good about that because it tells me that 
she feels safe laughing at those things with me, that she can be vulnerable. And uh, I think that we get that same thing here. There's a moment, um, I think it's, I think it's when Beetle is, Beetle and Monkey are, are looking over Kubo. They're putting him to sleep. <laughs> that sounds like they're killing him. Sorry. Wow. They're putting, <laughs> Monkey is uh, tucking him in and, and um, I, I forget the line specifically, but he, uh, I think Beetle says something like, oh, you seem to really love him. Because yeah, I do. He says, you know, I, I, it, it led to a punchline of her saying, I'm not tucking you in. You know, <laughs> it's just real. And, and that kind of affection, that kind of banter, I think feels very lighthearted. It feels at first like we're trying to find levity, but it really plays into the genuineness of their relationship and the three of their relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Just, it's really beautiful. Yeah. That, that's another exact, exactly. That's another great example of that line, uh, the, of a line that just kind of one off. Right. And, and it's like, Oh, I get it. I, I get where you are as a couple now. Um, and then, and it all comes together kind of after the fact in hindsight, once you find out who they are. Yeah, exactly. There's, um, go ahead. One more thing on the, on the foreshadowing thing. There's another moment that was really cool when Kubo is sleeping and he wakes up and, uh, monkey tells him you were sleeping and you were talking about your father. You were calling out for your father. And then the paper did that. And Hanzo has been created. And it's reminiscent of a scene early in the movie where Kubo notices that his mom in her dreams and in her sleep is, you know, moving the paper. The paper is the paper is manifesting itself. The magic is taking action based on her dreaming. And I thought it was super cool that they use this. I didn't notice it until this viewing. But the way that she explains it by saying, you know, your father was um you were calling out for your father and his you were asking for his assistance and then hanzo is what appears which is essentially his grandfather right and i just i loved the way that that ties in and all of these little elements it it plays perfectly into the whole were you watching closely were you paying attention did you blink um and i I love that i think that um the I look at I look at this film and I and I say that again the care is just that's taken into every facet of it is just phenomenal to me. But more than anything, I think that what this did for me there there are two things that surprised me. One that I can remember all the character names, which is something that I have trouble doing because you know who can't remember Monkey Beetle and Kuba, right? Um, but the other thing is that I'm not a big fantasy guy, like. You know this. I, I, I'm I'm not right. one to to run out and see Warcraft or uh, Valerian. You know these big space operas or epic fantasies, things like that. What surprised me was that there was a lot of that in this film, a lot of just sort of understood magic. The <laughs> it, it took me a minute to get my head around of going, okay, does does he know that his origami is turning into people and they're cutting chickens heads off uh, you know that kind of thing it does does he know that or is are we imagining this but throughout the film it became something that i was just really encouraged to see more of like i wanted to see more of those things because not only of the visual appeal that it had but of but of the way that it enhanced the story it didn't feel like eye candy 
Uh It felt like everything that was done from a magical standpoint was done with purpose. And if, if that's what your end goal was, then you got me. And so congrats. I appreciate the, the fantasy aspect of it from that regard. Good deal. Well, as we, as we're closing out, I wanted to move into our connecting point and there were a lot of emotional places that we probably could have pulled out for our own individuals. But I, I like our connecting point section because even if we had like 12 of them, which there have been movies when we've both admitted to having a number of them, having that, having to make that choice, just like our listeners had to make you know a choice from this one or, or, the, or the other one, I think that uh, it makes me excited to see which one, which one moment actually stood above for you. So what was your connecting point in, in for Kubo? Well, before I give it, I want to say this. You and I talked about this recently offline, how doing the podcast and having this section has been the greatest choice we ever made because we now watch films and whether we're doing a podcast on them or not, we are engaged and intentionally being aware and and awake to finding out where our connecting point is. And it's fun because sometimes we'll talk about it afterwards and we'll tell each other, oh, hey, I watched this random movie and I had a connecting point and this is what it was. One of my greatest hopes is that as we continue to grow and as the community in the Facebook discussion group or our Twitter followers, anywhere you want to find us to come talk to us, as that grows, I would love every week to have people just shooting off messages to us with their connecting points for the films that we talked about. That Absolutely. would that would be awesome because you're right. There are definitely and there are movies where it's just going to be a whole big slew and the thread and a conversation about oh I agree with you Aaron or I agree with you Patrick because we picked something that resonated with a bunch of people. But mm-hmm. there will be there will be films where there's there's twelve different options and and I want to know what other people connect with more than me and, and why. Right. So I just want to put a call out for that. If you're yeah. listening to this and if you're you're on our Facebook group or follow our Facebook page or Twitter or anywhere. Let us know what your connecting point is for Kubo and for for any of your any episode that you listen to, uh, yeah. because I think that's something we would really really enjoy talking about more. Oh, absolutely. I I I think that when I look at our connecting points, and I never want to put it in a box that says this is what's required for a connecting point, but I know that thematically, or at least the common ground that I've I've run into for connecting points is really the moment in the film that informs my appreciation for the rest of it you know so it's it doesn't have to be that but normally it's this one moment that sort of amplifies a theme that i've gravitated towards or a character development or something that really pushes the even for the films that i didn't care for that much are my connecting points are usually driven to inform my appreciation for the rest of the film case in point the connecting point for me on this one was that initial story that Kubo told while he was in the village. Oh, yeah. Completely, completely unexpected. And when I saw him start making these, or using magic to make these origami stories, seeing Hanzo flying through the air and without even having to speak, obviously, because he's paper, making little, you know, little uh, gestures with the sword and fighting and things like that. I, I love. I loved seeing that you combine that with the music of his um, 
gosh, I forget what it's, I don't even know. I forget what the stringed instrument's called. I think it's called, uh, uh, let's see. I can't remember. Yeah. I I, it's know. not a guitar, obviously. And if, if it, whatever it is, I'll probably butcher the name. So I'll just call it his three string guitar. But when, when you combine that origami, the visuals of the origami with the music of the, uh, the his little guitar thing, it made me smile. But that wasn't what connected. The fact is I love a good story. And no less than maybe 15 times in the third act, the word stories or storyteller, I mean, it's spoken 31 times in the movie. And 13 of those times were in the last 15 minutes of the film. So obviously the idea of stories and storytelling and the value of those is important to the storytellers in this movie. And so the way that Kubo drew me in says a lot about the way that the writers and animators of this film work together to help us as an audience become part of that village experience. Like I was sitting there with the old lady laughing and hoping that this chicken would come out <laughs> as part of his story because you know what? Every film needs some humor. Yeah. You know, you know, even Manchester by the sea. Okay. Every film needs some humor, <laughs> but I was genuinely disappointed when he had to go home. So I was hooked. I was like, Oh, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And thematically, I thought this was brilliant since a major idea in this film is the finiteness of stories mm -hmm. and how all stories have an ending. And that it's actually a good thing because endings can provide some kind of resolution. Mm -hmm. And for Kubo, this meant coming to grips with the loss of his parents and knowing that like stories, he can begin a new a narrative with his life as it is now. It was very bittersweet, but it was very beautiful at the same time. And I thought that that moment really helped amplify the overall themes that were being told to us in the, in the film. Yeah, that's it. it was, I will say this. The first two times I watched this movie, that would have been my connecting point. Honestly, it, I, I felt the I exact same way. Yeah, exactly. Virtual, but it, <laughs> it, you're right. It is just so beauty, beautiful. And the amazement and wonder of what we're seeing is something that we've never, ever, ever, ever seen before. We've never experienced this in movies or storytelling. It is truly, utterly unique. And because of that and how magical it was, I was completely blown away and just entranced and it, and it's what hooked me too into the movie full on. Um, I'm bought in now, right. When that happens. So great choice. Awesome. Awesome choice. And I want to point out real quick before I do mine, something that I did not mention during the episode. It came to me when you were talking about trying to figure out what his instrument was with the three strings. So my daughter and I had this great experience the whole time we watched this movie. She continually told me how there's only two strings. And actually, it had started in the marketing. She had watched the trailers. She's like, Dad, I've watched the trailers. I have paused them. I have looked at the marketing. There are only two strings. Why is it? Or, or I'm sorry. There are, there, there, are three are, there are three strings. Why is it called Kubo and the two strings? Why is it called Kubo and the two strings? And I was like, Ashlyn, I <laughs> don't know. I'm sure you're just wrong, right? You're just missing, misunderstanding. She's like, no. And so she was, she would show me on the trailer. She'd pause. She'd play it and pause it and be like, <laughs> look, count. There's three. So when we watched the movie, the whole time she was watching, she was completely looking for some sort of explanation as to why there were three strings. Mm -hmm. And the, the aha and oh, and like face drop moment 
where she put it together, what the two yeah. strings were and what they meant mm-hmm. was amazing for me. And th- that in and of itself was almost like a kind of a personal connecting point, like not even because the title of, of the film is a connecting point because of what those meant to Kubo and exactly. what they, what they represented. And Ashlyn was like, I get it. It's not what I thought it was. Right. And, that's, and her seeing good... her understand and well for me too, but seeing her realize it was a huge joy. Just mm-hmm. as a parent, as a father. So with that being said, I'm going to go into my real actual connecting point. Uh, and that is Monkey's story about meeting Hanzo. This, as I mentioned the first two times, was not as resonant for me. But this time around, it was something that really just, I don't know, it drew me in. But Monkey's telling this story of how she met Kubo's father and they were actually fighting, and in the midst of that, they end up coming arms together, and that's when they fall in love. And he tells her this great line that I will never forget. He tells her, you are my quest, and I am a romantic at heart, and that is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in movies. I will tell you, it's for me, it is probably second to As You Wish, as far as movie love language goes in you, when it comes to unique ways in which to express your love. Um, I would also, there's a, there's a, an element of your name that revolves around this, uh, this, this, uh, traditional red circle of a string. That is also something that's very, very resonant for me. But, when he says you are my quest, I just, I lose it. <laughs> I think that is the sweetest thing someone could ever say to another person because it, it's almost like he's saying, he's not, he's not saying I love you, which is emblematic of just this moment in time. Like I love you right now. I'm, I'm saying that in this second, I love you. He's saying you're my quest, meaning you are always and forever what I am seeking to attain, right? Or to, to, please or to make happy or whatever the case may be. It's an, kind of like an infinite goal. And that's how I view real love. So I love that part of it. I like the idea here that love doesn't conquer all, but it makes you strong. And that family is what each person is seeking in this story. Um, the fact that her story is told using Kubo's paper magic is really, really sweet. Um, it's also got great humor from Beetle because he says, she says, listen to the, you know, I have four words for you. And Beetle goes, I love you monkey. <laughs> when she's, when he, when, right before she says, you are my quest. And then after this takes place, it keeps going and monkey and Beetle have a conversation. And it's where Beetle swears to protect Kubo, even when monkey is gone And he says, your story will never end. It will be told by him and by the people that he shares it with. The point is your story will live on in him. And I mean, it just, it just wrecked me. It absolutely (laughs) wrecked me. And maybe that's because I lost my mom recently. And that's where it came from because that's what's happening here, right? A father is telling his wife, don't worry. Your son is going to, you're going to live on and your memories and your, what you've instilled in him is going to keep going through him so i just now actually thought of that like in the moment i I didn't even realize that but maybe that is part of why it was such a strong connecting point for me and that's that's a scene that 
I just will always lock in on and, and kind of hold my breath for, I think, going forward. I, I would wholeheartedly agree that You Are My Quest is, wow. I mean, it's, <laughs> when I heard those words, both the first and second time, I was like, this is a kid's movie? No, 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 no. <laughs> this is this is good romance here. I'm not even romantic, and I got a little, I got a little emotional there. I was like, I know what I'm going to tell my wife at some point. <laughs> exactly. So, that's going to... Man, and and I love that idea because a quest, being a quest, you mentioned this, I believe, it's always going. It's never ending. It just continues on and on. And the quest is the adventure, the not the destination, the journey, and all that stuff. And, and, and that's a very, very cliche idea, but man, what a great way to say it. What a very refreshing way to say it. You are my quest. So very, very cool, man. Well, listen, guys, we appreciate you listening if you have up to this point. And as Aaron mentioned, if you've seen this film or others, please pop over to the Facebook group and tell us what your connecting points are. What were what were the moments or moment, you know, moment or moments that that resonated with you that caused you to say, wow, that's the moment that I connected with this with this film, the the deepest or, you know, and it could be a funny moment. It could be whatever. But where did you personally connect with this or other films? And you can find us as always in the Facebook group, as we've mentioned a number of times, you know, it's, we're not going to be <laughs> shameless plug. We're just not going to be ashamed of constantly promoting that because there's so much great discussion that happens in there. Lots of great perspectives on things and, and lots of people there just voicing great opinions and, and creating that, that lively discussion. So you can find that there on the Facebook page or in the Facebook group or at our website, uh, feelingfilm.com. And if you want to continue the conversation with me, you can uh, find me at the big three, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at shoeless patch, S H O E L E S S P A T C H. Uh, you can find me at all three of those. And I would uh, love to keep the conversation going next week. We're going to join forces with those boys from the retro. We let me say that again, retro rewind podcast. You, you just enough. rewinded. I did. It was like intentional. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) From those boys from the RRP, (laughs) Francisco and Paul. And we're going to be talking about Tron Legacy, something that I think all four of us are pretty excited about. And uh, I'm looking forward to getting the conversation going with them. Aaron, what about you? Where can people find you? Uh, As always, you can find me all over the internet at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E on Facebook and on Twitter. Um, I am very accessible and would love to talk. So that's where you can find me. And I'm looking forward to that every single week. And I'm looking forward to next episode, Patrick, and next week. But until then, as we like to always recommend, listeners, stay positive. And keep feeling film.